Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. It's like I've forgotten how to say hello. <laughs> hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Life with Kaka. I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. This week's episode is coming to you hot from the Dominican Republic, where I am currently producing a commercial for a very cool resort and feeling hashtag blessed, but also very overwhelmed. Alas, the show must go on. This week, I sat down with producer and director Mark Burley, who was put on my radar via a driver on one of my movie sets a few years back. When people you adore speak very highly of other people whom you've never met, well, you listen. Mark is a veteran of the television space, a world I am not as familiar with. At the time of this recording, a few months back, he had actually just finished directing the series finale of Orange is the New Black, which is pretty cool. So I was very excited to talk to him and dig in and understand more about the complex world that is television. But what I did not expect was to be reminded of this very important lesson I often forget, and that is patience. It's not really one of my strong suits, but it's a work in progress, like all of us. So. I hope you enjoy hearing this little slice of Mark's story. Without further ado, let's dive right in. Testing, testing, one, two, one, two. Yeah, I was having a minor panic moment because I was like, oh, his microphone doesn't That's work. because I don't know what I'm doing. And then you just press the on button. Sometimes yeah. life is I just that simple. I technical people to do all that stuff. I wish everything in life was like, I don't have the answer to this problem, but the solution's just right there. You just have to delegate. Flip you delegate. The you on get button. other people to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I have people to put the on button on for me. For you. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Incredible. That's how you, that's how you get it well, done. we were just talking a little bit off the air of like my personal reasons why I was interested in talking to you today and why I was um, excited to have you on as a guest and all the wealth of knowledge you bring. So please take us back to the beginning. The start. You want, you want the start of when I uh, actually started to think that. Uh, film or television business would be my life. Both. I would love to hear how a guy born in Berlin. Well, I ends was I was I was born in Berlin, but I was my father was British, mm. so that was he was in the Foreign Office, so that was sort of an an aberration as opposed to the fact that I'm anything to do with Germany. Uh, but we did live there till I was about four years old. I was brought up in England and went through the British sort of snooty boarding school mm. system <laughs> and all those privileges um, and then went to University Bristol. During my time there I became interested in films, very interested in films. I mean I've been interested in films before but there was a time when I thought oh this is actually something that I'm interested in doing as a career. We had a film society and we used to show all these uh, avant-garde French pretentious films, Last Year in Marion Bad, Hiroshima Mon Amour, Fellini, and all of those kind of things. So I used to love all those. And then in towards my last year, there's only three years of college in England, because mm. uh, English people learn so much quicker. <laughs> uh, I believe it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you definitely sound smarter than all of us. Uh, so. That's actually part of the the bullshit of having a British accent. Is I love People it. think you're smart when you're not. So. Yeah. But you know what? As long as they keep thinking it, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to have them think that. Um, so I sort of thought, well, what can I do uh, to get into that business? And I applied a little bit to the, like the BBC and independent networks, ITV and all of that sort of thing. So then I realized that I couldn't actually get that. And a friend of mine who um, was a year ahead of me had left and joined an advertising agency in London. Mm -hmm. And then he'd gone into production company making commercials. So I thought, oh, well, I can do that. So I applied to an advertising agency, Young and Rubicon, which is a big American ad agency. And at that time, I think it was like number two in the world. Uh, it's still going, um, but been way surpassed by a lot of bigger agencies since then. And then I applied to them and I became uh, a graduate trainee for them. You're supposed to do six months as a graduate trainee and become an account executive. And they put you in all the different departments. And when I got into the television department, television production department, mm -hmm. I said, I want to stay here. And they made me um, an assistant to uh, uh, ad agency producer. And that was my job for two years 
um, before I emigrated to America, went round until I started getting jobs. And how old were you? For commercial, for on commercials. I was in my early 20s, moved here. To LA, straight to LA. To, straight to LA. Mm. I used my degree <laughs> for, two, for two months while I earned some money. My degree was in psychology. Nice. Yes. So you're in the right industry then. Uh, I, you know <laughs> what? I always say I've never used my de- degree ever in my <laughs> life. And everybody says, probably you used it every day. But it wasn't really that kind of psychology. Mm. It was very scientific psychology. Mm, interesting. So I actually worked in on the, on the West Coast for two months to make some money to come over here. I worked in a psychiatric institute as a psychiatric aide. That wow. Was, that was real, you know, sort of... Um, uh, it was a, it was a r- interesting to see what it was really like yeah. inside there. It was it's not it's like pretty, it's not like grim. the movies. Not quite as bad as the movies. Mm. There were some weird things in there. I mean, there were children that were put in there who basically behaved badly, but their children put them in. I mean, their parents put them into into a psychiatric hospital. Wow. To sort of because they couldn't control them, um, and you know, and then the other side of the thing was you know severe alcoholics who were detoxing and were having all sorts of physical issues that you have yeah. to sort of deal with in the middle of the night. But wow. It's not pretty. I won't, I won't go into the details. Yeah, no, that's... Uh, anyway, so that was the end of it. But I mean, I, that was only... I mean, I knew I was there to, to visit. Um, and then actually the, f- the friend who was a, a year ahead of me by this time had moved to New York and he and I drove out to California together. I bought wow. a car and we drove to California together. Amazing. And then he went back. Yeah. So that was how I arrived in L.A. I went around knocking on doors for about a year. And during that time, I, you know, did, I worked as like a waiter to make money. Uh, I did in that first year get a job for uh, somebody who had made a movie called The Groove Tube, <laughs> which was a sort of cult hit that was big hit with the college kids yeah. back then. Um, and he was supposed to be making another movie. I said to him, well, look, I'll come in and work a couple of days a week when I'm not work, you know, making money. And then if the sh- when the movie goes, I'll get a job on the movie. And he said, okay. So I did that for about a month or so. I wasn't getting paid. And then one day his assistant came in. This was Ken Shapiro. He told Ken, uh, I've got a job. It's a new job. It's in New York. It's on a new show that's about to start up. It's called Saturday Night. <laughs> And so his name was Tom Schiller, and he left, joined Saturday Night Live, and he used to make the Schillers, he was a writer, and he used to make the Schillers reels. I don't know if you remember. Mm-hmm. They, I don't. They, they were like takeoff little, like little movies that they showed on Saturday Night Live. So anyway, he left, mm. and I got the job. So that was my first actual wow. job. So I was actually then getting paid, and we had an office at Paramount. Meanwhile, nothing was happening on the movie. Nothing was happening on the movie. Paramount said, I can't have the office anymore, but you can keep the assistant. So then I was working for him at his home in Beverly Hills, <laughs> basically getting his car serviced and cleaning his pool. And all right, all then the that uh, went on for about another couple of months. All the assistant uh, yeah, rites any, of passage. Yeah, you know, getting coffee. Yeah. Uh, then they said, you know what? This movie's never happening, and you've got to lay off your assistant. And so I went, that was it. That was the end of it. That was... And I went <laughs> back to waitering. But after about a year, I got my first job on commercial. Mm. And uh, also, because I'd been here a year, I was able to get unemployment. So mm. then after that, I, you know, I got a job on a commercial doing location scouting and then PAing and so on. And then after that, that was the last, after one year, that was the last time I ever did anything that wasn't something to do with the film or television business. So then I so would work on commercials for about three years and worked. Uh, w- I, I, I quite quickly became an assistant director and then a production manager. And of course, on commercials, you're doing everything at once. So I was doing production manager, producer, assistant director on the yep. same commercials, which is great training. Yes. So I did that for about three years, and then I was able to get into the Directors Guild. In those days, it was a little easier. I came right in as an assistant director slash UPM because mm. uh, you only needed 90 days. Wow. Now yeah. it's like now it's 400. 600, yeah, so 450 or something. Yeah. Yeah, right. I was actually recommended over to Universal. There was an after-school special that I got hired as an assistant director UPM on because of a recommendation. He was a friend of somebody I was working with on the commercials. So I did that, uh, and that director had been – he was a fairly new director – 
and he'd been an assistant director at Universal Studios. He recommended me over to Universal Studios, mm -hmm. the production company hired me. So then two days later, I got a call, so, and I was supposed to start the next Monday. They said, uh, sorry, we're not hiring you on this show, but we're going to have to pay you for a week. The production manager was a guy who's probably like my age now, mm. decided that I was far too young in my late 20s to be a first AD mm. on, on a show at Universal. So because I sort of moved up very quickly, mm. I got fired off that job before I started it. Um, and then I picked up a week working on a commercial the same week. And I was getting severance pay from the after school special. So I got paid three times that week. So <laughs> that my best week ever. <laughs> uh, Work in the system to your advantage. Yeah, but then what, mm. then what happened was it, the Universal hired me. Within two weeks later, I became an assistant director on The Incredible Hulk wow. with, with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. So that was my first job in real television. I was AD for about half a season. And then I became the unit production manager. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the last season, I actually got to direct an episode. And in all that time when, um, you know, you were still kind of finding your footing and getting close to certain jobs and then not getting them for circumstances outside of your control, what was it that sort of kept you going and pushing through? Um, that's a, a kind of interesting question. It's, I I mean, I know that I was very determined and I was very organized. I mean, when I, so like, so when I started on commercials, I had like lists of people that I would call up, you know, I'd, I'd get a name and then I'd call that person and I'd say, can I come and see you? And this is what I want to do. And then I would always ask them, do you have somebody else that you can recommend that I go talk to? Um, and I was staying with a friend in in uh, West Hollywood, uh, and he said, "Oh, you were so like determined. You were like really organized, and you, you know, I, and I know call these people up like the next week. I was probably like really annoying." Um, it's a thin line, I think. Yeah, right. Uh, and so once I started working on commercials, I didn't really have a sense that something wasn't going to happen. Mm. I mean, I didn't really plan how I would go into television from there i hadn't didn't have like an organized plan of it because i was working making quite good money on yeah but you knew you were in commercials but, and you but thought I, that's yeah, not your future i mean i didn't realize yeah. quite how much i didn't like commercials <laughs> until i got into television yeah it's a tricky business working commercials and you're dealing with a lot of people who are from the agencies who are like a don't know what they want and b are terrified of yeah, it's a fear-based. It's a fear-based community, it and it's all client services. And it's talk about you know psychology. It's yeah, tricky. and I think you know subsequently, I and mean, looking back on it, and and from where I stand now, my interest uh, is in story and character and all of that sort of thing. So with that you get relatively little of. In yeah, in commercials, but I mean I. You know, even now, I, if I'm watching something, I will want to watch something that is uh, a story. Yeah. I can't stand, like, reality TV. Right. Or, you know, I, I really want a good, usually a scripted story of some kind. Yeah. I mean, there are, some, you know, documentaries I like sometimes. But it's, so I think that's kind of what, what was, what I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, once I g and then once I got into TV as a UPM, the next step obviously was to become a producer, which again, I didn't plan per se, but I, after The Incredible Hulk finished, I did one other show I won't mention, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Harper Valley PTA, um, <laughs> and they made a TV show of it. They did? Wow. Yeah. This is Eden. before before my time, I think. Yes. Well, you've probably heard of the TV I've show. I've heard of it, uh, yeah. Of the movie, I mean. Yeah, but, yeah. But yes, so they actually made a, it was a one year, I think it lasted one year. It was not, not good. Mm. Uh, so I worked on that. Then I got hired as the UPM on Simon & Simon. So the line producer sort of became like an executive 
line producer and then he brought and then he made me a line producer and then they had this other show so he was running both of those mm. shows so that was my first job as a producer which is obviously was a huge deal yeah me. big step so to make that jump and i became a uh, I, be I was on that for seven seasons one of the things that the producer who had made me into executive producer made me into a line producer did not want me to direct because he wanted me to focus on producing producing yeah can you define what a producer is in that case i mean in that case of a like pure line producer mm -hmm. which is what i was then you're dealing with the organizational part of mm -hmm. filmmaking you're dealing with hiring crew you're dealing with budgeting the episodes, you know, all, everything you, everything is a cooperative. So when you say, you know, doing the budget, you're working with the EPM, when you're hiring the crew, you're working with the other, the other producers, um, uh, scheduling the episodes again, you know, with the AD and the EPM. Right. Uh, so it's very much um, sort of the, person who's running the factory and keeping it running smoothly mm -hmm. and getting it everything done on time and for budget right and so how how is that different than an, a capital p producer well there's so many d capital p producer there's a lot of different producers exactly so name producer in the television space is used very arbitrarily it's it's used a lot for writers some of which, some of whom may not have any really physical producing um, background, so n may know very little about it. Um, so they, I mean, with like in the Producers Guild, they actually make a distinction when people get put up for Producers Guild awards. They make a distinction between people who are fully real hands-on producers and people who are writer producers who have no hands-on experience now most of them or or don't are not involved in the production at all most of those producers nowadays are involved in lots of things like casting and like on on orange into the new black which we just finished we send one producer the producer who wrote that episode will go to new york and be there so but that is a sort of the big a big distinction is the distinction between a producer who is real line producer, hands-on producer, and right. producer who is a writer producer. Um, so then, of course, then there are people who are executive producers or co-executive producers or supervising producers, all of which titles don't tell you necessarily what the person is doing, but they will all have levels of being more involved in writing and or editing, which is an, obviously uh, another big part of... Mm -hmm. producing and then of course there's a showrunner who's generally you never see somebody title say showrunner on a, on a show on screen but that's generally one of the executive producers and that's the person for whom has the final creative control over the show mm. uh, so it's very confusing for people who are outside the business well mm -hmm. even inside the business i speak for myself as someone who's kind of come up in the indie space more right. on the and feature it's side it's supervising producer is different from a production supervisor it's it's a whole very um and i i would say i can only again speak from the indie space that even within how we allocate the title of producers is also different from project to project and i don't know if that's the case in television or if it's a little bit more rigid in terms of you only get this the you know supervising producer title once these things happen every time well there's a there's a lot of differences between the between the, the movie side mm -hmm. and the TV side. I mean, one of the big differences is, first of all, producers in television are not going out and getting the money to make the show. Right. They, if they're the showrunner or the show creator or whoever's made the show, they are going to a television network of some kind or a studio and they are selling, they are persuading that studio to put the money out. People do not make, do not get their own money 
make a television show and then go sell it afterwards. I mean, you might make it in one place and sell it in another in another country. So that's a big distinction. Whereas a feature mm-hmm. producer is getting a script, presumably, and getting the people and getting the money. Now, they may get the money from a studio or they may have to go get it you know independently mm-hmm. or from a lot of places to gather it all up but they are sort of part of the fi- of the financial ownership of that movie right whereas you are not necessarily part of the financial ownership of a television show as a producer right some unless you are a creator of that if show if you're a creator you get some sort of a back end right um but for you know, for me as a line producer, or or as a producer, or, and or supervising and co-executive executive executive producer on many shows, I don't get any back end of those shows. The only time I get back end is is for writing when I would you know getting residuals for writing mm-hmm. or for directing, so right. getting residuals, which is different from ownership. Mm. Um, but to go back to your other, to the other point is that on a feature film. The highest position or the top position is producer. Right. And these people who are called executive producers are sort of like people who have maybe been given a favor or maybe they put some money into it or something. Mm-hmm. But the, produ- so the producer is the sort of the most senior title. In television, executive producer is the most senior title. Yeah. <laughs> and all of those other producers a co-executive supervising producer, are below them. Mm -hmm. And in television, the writers are the control. They are the king of the show. Right. And obviously the creative, whoever wrote it or created the show, is the king of the show. Whereas in in features, generally the director right. is or the, the producer. the director's medium. Yeah, yeah it's versus, a director's yeah. medium. And, you know, back in the day, the writers weren't even allowed on the set. I mean, that's sort of a bit changed now. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, that, so that's another set of confusion mm. for people who are outside the business. Right. And, so in the... And it, inside. <laughs> how, how many years have you been in television now? 30, safe uh, to say? Yes. So in the 30 plus years, have you seen any changes from the inside with the structure of those titles and the responsibilities that come with all of those different titles? Um, they are pretty similar. Um, I would say that... I, I'm trying to say that the that maybe the writers have got even more control over television than they did, but that's not really true. If you think back to like Bochco and all of those people who are making you know, TV shows... Uh, back in the day, they were all writers, and that was how they got their control. So, no, I don't think that that part of it has changed. I mean, the business has changed a lot in terms of how, who's making shows, and how you know what shows are being yeah. made, and the breakaway from network television is changed a huge amount. And you, and you were a part of that, right? Because when you were working on Weeds. And then you went with Genji to go do Orange is the New Black and now with Glow. And I mean, I would love to hear that transition of, you know, Orange being one of the first sort of pioneer shows for Netflix that was original content for them and how that has evolved into obviously what Netflix has become. Everything I worked on before the beginning of Weeds was a network television show. Now that I have not done that (laughs) since the beginning of Weeds... I realize how much more creativity there is in television than there used to be. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is really the, people keep saying it's the second golden age of television. I hate to say this, there is a lot of television that is better than most movies these Uh, days. I 100% agree. I mean, there is so much really great storytelling but it's not on the big three networks. It's mm-hmm. all, you know, on, as you say, Showtime and it's HBO, Netflix, it's Netflix Hulu, and Hulu yeah. Apple, FX. All of these people are making, they all have like some great TV shows. The other thing that's changed is that back in the day, you made a TV show on network that had a limited production value. I mean, it looked like a TV show, as opposed to if you make a show now, 
it needs to look as good as a feature film. Mm -hmm. That's the new norm. It is the new norm. Yeah. And if you're not doing that, you're, you know, you're not making really good <laughs> TV. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's a, another huge thing. Yeah. I mean, there was a very strict limit of how much money was allowed to be used on a TV show back in the day. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, there seems to be, depending on what the show is and who the production entity is, right. there seems to be a huge amount of variation. Your Game of Thrones, I mean, right. God knows what they're spending exactly. per Exactly, and episode. it's kind of similar to the approach of features, honestly, that it's like, well, tell me who, who's, who's a part of the creative team and who's in your cast and uh, what are sort of the accolades that they bring to the table and we'll tell you how much we want to spend on it, how much we want to commit. You know, it seems yeah, like, it's true. especially with the, the players that have the luxury of uh, what feels like, you know, pockets that go on forever and ever, like like a Netflix it's it's changing I'm sure it's the same at HBO but at, you know Netflix they they have so many shows now that they're, they're more careful about what they spend um but you know they have to be they've got just they have so to be so much stuff going well so you you know you were on the inside for the f the first show that was one of the pioneer shows for Netflix which is Orange is the New Black and now Glow which is sort of the second wave of Netflix original content from my opinion how have you seen that evolution from the inside um, well, going back to, to sort of the beginnings of Orange and the beginnings of uh, of Netflix making their own TV, TV shows, because Orange, Orange and House of Cards were the first two shows that they sort of made themselves. They bought a couple of, mm -hmm. or they bought a lot of series before that, and they even bought some that they sort of said were their a Netflix production, but they weren't quite. And then Orange, they actually, you know, bought it and then House of Cards, they, they bought both of those shows. So in those days, um, there was, um, they like Orange actually got in the last three seasons, picked up for three seasons, the last three seasons. It was picked up for season mm -hmm. after season four, it was picked up for season five, six and seven. That doesn't happen anymore. They have a lot of more programming now and they will look at every show and see how it's doing. And like on Glow, when we finish the season, and then they'll put it up and they will look at what the viewership is, which they don't tell anybody. Yeah. Um, but they will look at that and then they will decide to pick up the next season. So that's kind of their... Yeah. their they were much more gung-ho about things and without naming names, I think they picked up some shows for like a couple of seasons that were with extremely big name people that were not successful. So they have dis so they're now much, they have to be because they've got so much content, mm -hmm. they have to be more careful about what they are spending money on because they have a huge amount of, I can't even keep up with what's on Netflix. I, no one can. When you go on to, Netflix's page, you yeah. get a totally different page than I get. Oh, yeah. And everything is all, you know, about yeah. algorithms. So they know what you like. And actually, they tell you. They say, this is a 94% match for you. Yeah. And so and they're usually right. And and th they even go as far as changing the key artwork, depending on your tastes that and the kinds correct. of things that, that you've correct. been viewing. They have about, I think, seven different That's artworks per show. Yes. Which is, to me, just insane. Where do you store all of that? <laughs> somewhere in the cloud somewhere a very big iphone no, it's really fascinating and i think you know the the advantage of what netflix brings to the table and then a lot of the new players is like you were saying is creating a lot more jobs and opportunities for storytellers and this new new wave of like the types of storytellers who can for those of us who are working in this business now are lucky enough to be at a time when a lot of companies are wanting to put a lot of money into winning the space that's on the internet mm -hmm. and winning the audience that's on the internet. And that is extraordinary. You know, Apple has created a whole amount of content that nobody's even seen yet and hired a lot of, you know, name people. So that is great for people who are creative and creators, ha having you know spent more time at Netflix and other places. The one thing I will say about it is they are incredibly good at allowing creative people to do what they want, be creative. That is a whole different world than working on 
network TV right. that I did for a, you know for a lifetime, even more than like say Showtime. I mean, any show once it's been on for a while and has been successful, it doesn't matter where you are, they will tend to let you do what you do because it's been successful. Right, it's proven track record. But right? it's a proven yeah. track record, mm-hmm. so they you know they trust you so to speak. But you know on Netflix they try a lot of things and they allow people to do a lot of mm-hmm. different you know new stuff. Which is great. And yeah. Good, you know. I mean, do you think that the, the the sheer amount of options that there are now for what to consume is in some way doing more damage to us as a society than good? I don't see why that is hurting society. I mean, I think there's a lot of technological things that are hurting society yeah. potentially. There's just this romantic idea of, you know, there was a few television programs once back in the day and you would gather around the television with your family and y- it would unite people and you had these characters that came into your home and everything was very much an event. Like television ends of TV shows were events for most people that brought them together socially. And now there's so much option and you can be in bed with your wife or with your husband watching two completely different shows, having two completely different experiences. And then there's so much like I find myself getting extremely overwhelmed. I can't keep up with half of the things that are new and I barely have time to watch the things I want to watch that I like that I've been following. You know, I totally agree with the fact that you cannot keep up with everything that's 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 there. Um, And, you know, um, Emily Nussbaum, who's who writes, you know, for the New mm-hmm. Yorker and does all the all the TV critic criticisms, she came here and she was doing something about Genji and I. So I said to her, "This is your job. How do you keep up with it?" And she says, "Well, I actually can't keep up with everything that's there. I have to rely on recommendations of other people, which is, of course, what we're all doing right. uh, to a certain extent. And that's obviously a big part of the conversation now. Is have you seen this? Have you seen this?" You know, what channels are done? Oh, I don't even, I never even heard of Pop Channel. Right. They, you know, <laughs> now suddenly they've got, you know, good television on there. And so it's like, you know, you know, I haven't even heard of the channels, let alone the shows. Right. Um, even somebody whose job it is to be a critic of television cannot keep up with it all because right. there's just so much. And I think that, you know, the good stuff will rise to the top. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, d- I can't see that having choices is a bad thing yeah um you know i i so i don't really think about that or worry about it i just think are is this good storytelling are these true characters is it well written is it well you know am i enjoying watching the show yeah um and the fact that you can't see everything it's like you're not going to travel to everywhere in the world, although I have right. friends who've tried or <laughs> seem, seem to be able to do it pretty much. <laughs> but, I mean, it's like you can't go everywhere in the world. Does that mean you're not going to enjoy going to Machu Picchu? You know, oh, it, I happen to have been there. It was great. It was a fantastic <laughs> time. Um, but I, you know, I haven't been to the pyramids. So what? Well, there's only so much one can do in a lifetime, a human lifetime. It's yes. Time is so precious. It is. There's, yeah. there's a limit. Given that, what, what do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions people have about producers and this business? Um, I, I think that in television, I think the, the misconception is that produ- maybe it was what I was saying earlier, that producers actually own the television show, mm. TV shows, whereas it's the com- production companies that sort of own it um and obviously the showrunner has more interest uh so i think that's one misconception the other thing i find of people who are not in this business they don't even know what the difference between a producer and a director is right i have like a lot of people that i go out like hiking group and go out yeah they got no idea what the difference is they you explain Crazy. it to them yeah yeah but so and so all those things that are like really important to us well you should tell them to listen to this podcast okay i'm not sure that i've explained it very well (laughs) (laughs) but i can understand they don't understand the difference between different kinds of producers that that makes a lot of sense to me but if you don't actually know the difference between what a director is doing and what a producer is doing i mean presumably they know what a writer is doing you hope yeah you hope you hope (laughs) um then but i mean people out in the real world don't really have that dis- a lot of people have do not have that mm-hmm. distinction and yet we think it's obviously so important it's i do <laughs> is there a question that people often ask you that you wish they would stop asking you 
like something that you've just like in your career in the 30 plus years that you've just (laughs) you just get tired of answering that's an interesting question mostly it's like when am I going to retire which is like (laughs) I don't feel like I'm ever going to do that because I do what I enjoy doing so as long as I'm enjoying doing it and by the way as long as people keep hiring me Keep to hiring do it, it's twofold, which is right? <laughs> that's t- you know what there was a t- time in this business where you hit 40 that was it especially in the writer side mm. you know you were done you were washed up did uh, you ever experience that well i didn't because i was i think on the producer side you mm. it, th- there isn't really that stigma about finishing up and mm. um i was you know line producer and then Somehow or other, not somehow or other, but I met Genji and worked on since the beginning of the pilot of Weeds. Mm -hmm. And then I've been working with Genji ever since. So she has been amazingly hired me on, you know, and kept me going. And I love working with her. And then also what's happened is that I have segued from producing into directing. Mm -hmm. I am now doing something that I absolutely love doing so it's not work for me i mean yes it's hard i you know film that's one thing about the film business that people have no understanding of is how hard yeah how hard especially if you're on the set mm-hmm. how hard work it is production I mean, life production is not life easy is, is very hard and it's hard on families well it's hard on the soul and on the body it's hard yes. emotionally or in this vortex of time where the only thing that matters is making that thing and doing it well and right when with within the budget and keeping people safe and making sure everyone's getting along and there isn't any time or bandwidth for anything outside of that vortex and unless you're in it with those people it's really hard to explain how that consumes you yes people who are working on tv show all the time i you know and i haven't been on the set for a whole season working on the set because you know, as a director, you're coming in and do one or two episodes in a season. But the people who are working from the beginning of a season to the end, you know, doing 12, 13-hour days every day. For months. For months. months. It's extraordinarily hard. Yeah. it's I don't, um, I don't understand it personally. Especially the people that are crew positions that you physically have to be present on set at all times to earn a living. It's not a job to do unless you absolutely love filmmaking. I mean, yeah. if you don't have a total passion for it, this is not a job. This is not a job to do to make money. Right. It's a job you do because you love what you're doing. The other side of that coin is that, you know, when you get on a set with a crew, that basically everybody is there because that's what they like to do. Well, you hope. There's you a hope. Of, a lot of cynical well, people. Well, no, but you know what? You don't survive in this business unless that's the case. If you don't, true. If you're not there because you want to give 100 or 110%, you do not get asked back. Right. That's the way it is. Mm. It's a very demanding business. As a result, you better love it or, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're going to be unhappy. So what do you love about it? I mean, particularly from the days where you were mostly producing before you found yourself to directing, what was the thing that... Uh, what I love about it, I, I suppose, is I love the actual f- filmmaking storytelling aspect of mm. it. So even when I was, quote-unquote, a line producer... Well, I, I didn't tell you this. When I was a line producer on Simon and Simon and I wasn't able to direct, I got creatively frustrated and I started writing. So I wrote uh, on that, uh, on Simon and Simon, and then I was a writer, line producer on a show called Over My Dead Body, and then I went on to Murder, She Wrote, and I was a l- writer line producer on that which is like an unheard of job yeah there is no such thing (laughs) so uh i found it very difficult because i was having to work all week and then i was having to write all weekend and writing is not my a it's not my passion and b it's not what i think i'm really good at (laughs) i mean i'm a journeyman writer at best so i stopped doing that then the areas that I got really interested in were editing and post-production, mm-hmm. taking that film and cutting it and making it m- make the right story, what to take out, what to leave in, transitions, blah, 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 blah. That I loved doing and that I continued to do. And when I got a chance to direct on Orange, it served me 
incredibly well because I knew what would work in the editing room. It gave me a huge amount right, of leg up. Leg, sort of leg up. Obviously, I'd been on sets before, so I knew how sets run. Mm -hmm. So I arrived with a lot of tools. It's like taking crack cocaine. It's like <laughs> you just want... Not that I've taken crack cocaine, but, you know, you Can't just want to keep... <laughs> yeah, you want to keep doing it. Yeah. It's, it's so addictive. Uh, and it's so fun. After I directed the first episode of Orange is the New Black, uh, Genji came up to me afterwards and she said, where did you learn to direct? <laughs> I didn't really have an answer for her, but the answer is what I've just told you. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, obviously I've looked at a lot of films as well. So did you ever want to get into features throughout your career? Sure, yeah. Have you got a feature for me? I'll, I'll direct Maybe. it. Maybe. It used to be if you worked in film, that's what you did. And if you worked in television, that's all you did. And you did not get to cross-pollinate those two worlds, whereas I, I, now it's... I think that's disappeared. Yeah, that's um, definitely gone away. Yeah, that's disappeared. Which I think is great. Um, yes, I would love to direct a feature film. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to direct a feature film that's a good story. Right. You know? That's so harder. That's harder. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I don't want to just direct any feature film. Right. I would like to do something that had some, you know... Some heart and some reality and some truth. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So if someone were to ask you today how you define yourself professionally, you would say you're... I'm a recovering producer and uh, director. I love that. <laughs> so do you think you'd ever just straight up produce again or is there are those days behind you? Um, hmm. That's interesting. No, I don't think I would just produce again. Mm. No. I mean, I'd, I'm okay with... I mean, like Glow, I'm a producer and a director. We have a line producer. So yeah. in Orange, we had a line producer. I mean, I think now I'm at the point where I, if I wasn't directing on something, I would be less, I'm not that really interested. I feel like I've done my producing, mm. you know? So yeah. So if there's a legacy that you hope to leave behind in this business with not just your work, but who you are and the impact that you're making from within, what would that be? Um, wow, that yeah. you, you know, that seems so altruistic. Well, why not? So that's an interesting question. What is it that I want to leave behind? Um, there are a couple of things that I think about. First of all, one of the things that I've tried to do to, to, uh, to some extent is that when people, to give peop people who are coming up in the business an opportunity to do other things. Now, you can obviously that's limited on how much you can do mm -hmm. but people who have been my assistant in the past that have ended up being showrunners on their own show so i do try to and it, it, this is maybe this shouldn't go out over the air because i've got like a million emails <laughs> because i realized that i there's only so much you can do but i mean i do want to see people who are moving up succeed yeah and get into move up the ladder mm -hmm. so that's one thing i think is sort of an important part of you know, you give to the next generation, mm. the next people who are moving up, uh, you know, to fulfill yeah. their talents. The other thing is that you try to treat everybody with respect and like human beings are some, you know, assholes in this business. Mm. And those are the people that you do not want to work with. You know, Genji's team, it's always like, oh, we have a no asshole policy. Correct. Because it's, as we were saying a minute ago, it's tough enough as it is. Yeah. Without dealing with people who can't behave well and be good human beings mm -hmm. while they're doing it. Especially so, because it's so hard. I mean, if you were working eight hours and then you were going home, that would be, maybe you could live with the fact that somebody's a jerk. jerk. <laughs> yes, right. There's no reason for it. Yeah. There's absolutely no reason for it. Well, and you're also reaching the peaks of like, especially with production where you're so depleted, you're lacking sleep, you're not eating well, you're already on the brink of exploding at any moment as a human and everybody's kind of trying to keep the collective together. So to have one person who can't see that, it's so unnecessary. And I've never understood the root of that. Like, why be in this business then? Why do this job? Usually it's like fear. Oh, it's always fear, but it's, you know... I'm still young enough that I think I'm very um, idealistic about certain things and I haven't been ruined by that quite yet, even though I've been in this business longer than I seem to be based on how young I look. But I, I want to believe that, like you said, those people can find 
healing in some other place because usually it doesn't it comes from their personal lives and it's stuff that they're bringing into the workplace and that my heart breaks for them in that regard you know because to me your professional identity and your personal identity are not mutually exclusive in this business it's part of why you get hired is because you know genji likes you for who you are are there other people who could direct maybe just as well maybe i don't know but she likes you she likes your vision she likes your eye because of everything that you bring, right, from your life experiences, and that's intrinsically yours. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to not really work with many of those people, yeah. but I, I've, I've seen it. There was a pilot that I worked on, and the creator of the show was just nuts, shouting at people and standing on tables yeah. and accusing me of being a spy for the studio. And oh, God, and it's like, it takes so much, you probably know this better than me, to get anything made. To yes. get any collective of humans to come together and create something. It is so hard. So when you finally get that opportunity to misbehave that way, why someone could not see how fortunate they've been, how how grateful they should be for, for getting this tremendous opportunity that well, not everybody Because gets. they're terrified that they won't do well. Well, and then they don't. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, Yes, it is. It? But it's I mean, I think that that's lack of confidence and fear that they are going to be found out for not being able to do what they're doing even though they probably could if they just settled into it well they got there in the first place someone believed there you go that that's they my could. psychology degree coming up i agree this <laughs> is this is fantastic since you've been in this business so long there's obviously ebbs and flows to things yes when you're in your down slumps of and whatever that means to you how do you cope with that what keeps you going what gives you the strength to go on and stay um, I have been like so incredibly lucky and when you talk about down slumps you're talking about being unemployed basically or not necessarily not getting what you want it comes in many forms and I, I think, think there are two things um, first of all focus on the things that are working and what you're getting the joy from I'm going to Marie Kondo my life now. <laughs> <laughs> so does it bring you joy? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the other thing is to be patient. It takes time to get what you want. And you may have to go along doing whatever else you're doing. And then you take the opportunity to do what you want when you want to do it. So after Weeds had finished and Orange is the New Black was starting, Angie asked me, did I want to work on Orange is the New Black. And I said, yes, I would love to. Can I direct on it? She said, yes. It took us, or me, two years to persuade Netflix to let me direct a whole episode. So mm. now that seems like a long time. And it was. So it was, I mean, I directed a day in, in season two, and then I directed an episode in season three. So then I've been directing ever, ever since. And I'm lucky enough to just have directed the finale episode of it. Just we just edited. Congrats! That's what we were Thank you. Wow. That's what we were just doing That's before huge. you before you got here today. Yeah. Yes, it's huge. It was a huge, huge honor and a privilege. Yeah. Um, so patience. It's patience. Mm. It's looking. Don't be too impatient. I feel like you're looking right at me when you say that. Like okay. it's something well, I should. What be is it you? What is what is it you want to do next? Oh, gosh, I, I have too many ambitions. I think that's my problem is knowing what to focus on and when, hence this podcast. I mean, I have this endless desire to talk to people and connect and learn and grow and share the knowledge, small as it may be, with others. And whatever form that takes, it's part of where I find the joy in what I do and, and growing and learning from every movie I produce or every show I work on and showing people that you can be kind and you can have integrity to get where you want to go. It takes a little longer, I think, but the path is way more rewarding. So however that manifests itself in terms of what I'm actually doing, that's what, I, what I'm interested in, is how can I get there and be one of the people that no matter who I've come in contact with, at the end of the day, everyone says she's great, she's kind, she's good, she, she's full of integrity, she's true to her word, she's honest. That's important to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll meet a lot of interesting yeah. people through your I already podcast. have, yes. yourself included. Well, so thank you. No, thank you. Thank I, you. My I've enjoyed talking to you. Likewise. And my last question, which you sort of address, but just, just to wrap it up, to anyone who's listening, 
who wants to get into this crazy business, particularly, I guess, specifically follow in the path of a producer who maybe then goes on to direct award-winning shows, maybe for Netflix. I don't know. What advice would you give them? Don't get into this business unless you are totally, absolutely enamored and passionate about it. Mm -hmm. This is not a business to be involved in for any other reason because it's such hard work. We've also covered this is where you have to be, you have to be determined, you have to be patient, you have to start by doing jobs that are like way beneath you mm -hmm. um, or beneath what you potentially could become later. By the way, when you're doing those jobs, you're learning an awful lot, even though you may not think you are. Mm -hmm. You're learning the culture of the business. You're learning how to deal with people. I can't tell you the number of people that have come through us who started by being the person who gets coffee in the morning and the lunch is at lunchtime and that's been their job for however many, two, three years, they become script coordinator or whatever and then they become writers, on-staff writers. I mean, it's what I was just saying to you about being patient. You need to be patient, but you also need to have the same good attitude when you're getting the coffee and the lunches that, you're, that you want to have, you know, later. Mm -hmm. You know, the other advice is if you're a writer, start writing it doesn't cost any money to write it's just and actually it's almost at the point now where you can say that a little bit about directing that you can make things now for, for very little money yeah. compared to what it used to be like you can make you know people make short you were just talking about it a minute ago high maintenance started off as a web series yeah and the next thing you know it's a tv show on on hbo and there's a lot of those you mm -hmm. know there mm -hmm. so you can start by m making your own stuff and getting going and then one day maybe somebody will pay you to do it yeah incredible well this has been so awesome and insightful thank you for sharing this time with you're, me you're welcome with i'm glad us. we got to, to get together i know to do this it yeah. takes a while but like you said patience if patience that, yes if right we, we were patient in <laughs> getting know, together it took us like six to yeah, seven six, months i know yeah but here we are here we are Amazing. well i look forward to hearing this when it comes up yes Thank you yes, so much. Yes, I'll probably cringe at listening to myself. No, I'm sure. you'll be great. Uh, you'll be great. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I can't wait to hear what you think. Hit me up. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Life with Kaka. I would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, what you're loving about the show, what you want to hear more of. If you don't already, Please subscribe, rate, review, comment, wherever it is you, you get your podcasts. Tell everybody that you know. And I hope to see you here next week. Beijos. <laughs>